Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. Our compassion is bursting out. We want people to do well. We don't want there to be poverty. We certainly don't want particularly children to be hungry, but we want people to be doing better than a poverty line. But at least we need to measure how many people are uh, are suffering the kind of deprivation that you journalists and you politicians describe. There is value in, um, in us understanding how many people don't have those basics covered. And there's probably value in having, let's say, a higher measure, which I suggested, which I developed at twice the poverty line as a goal. Hello, I'm Danielle Smith, president of Alberta Enterprise Group, and welcome to another edition of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. I'm speaking now with a professor emeritus of economics from Nipissing University in uh, Ontario. And his name is Christopher Sarlo, who is also a senior fellow of the Fraser Institute. I've been following his work for some time, and we're going to walk through a little bit of the successes as well as some of the ways in which he has reframed the issue of, of poverty in Canada. And he joins me now to talk about it. Professor, thanks so much for being with me today. Nice to be with you. Let's begin by by talking about, I remember way back when I first became familiar with your work, it was when I was an editorial writer and columnist with the Calgary Herald. And it seems like stats can, every time they put out the low income cutoff statistics, it was just reflexive for media to call that a poverty line. And it took a lot to try, even stats can said it's not a poverty line, but it took a lot to try to get our thinking around what poverty really is. And so I, I want to start there in case most, in case some people don't know that there has been a new measure that has developed. Um, when you look, why is it that when people are looking at this low income cutoff, why is it that it's just so easy to think of that as a shorthand for poverty? Well, it's called a low income cutoff. And I think that uh, particularly when my book came out, uh, it was called Poverty in Canada uh, in 1992. Uh, what I found was a lot of the people in the social justice community gravitated to the LICO, to the low income cutoff. Uh, they were concerned, I think, about, uh, you know, the measure that I had developed was sort of a basic needs idea. And, and perhaps I could just go back. And when I first looked at the, uh, the low income cutoff, it struck me as being um, a bit unrealistic. Uh, I, I grew up in a family, a large family. And when I first encountered the low income cutoffs, I looked at the lines and I said, gee, I've been poor all these years. <laughs> I've grown up in a poor family. Uh, this is when I was a graduate student, and I, I just thought uh, there's something I'd like to to check on once I get finished all this education. So I did look into it, uh, and I found that the lines were seemed to be a little bit high, uh, and and I also found that it was that the low income cutoff was connected indirectly to average living standards, which made it a more or less a relative measure. Um, 
but the fact is that the, the social community, social justice community seemed to gravitate uh, around the LICO. Uh, I think at the time when my measure came out and it would cause a lot of stir and a lot of people were uh, criticizing it as being too low. I'll just give you the motivation. Uh, when I was reading about poverty and, I, you know, this is after I looked at the Lycos and thought they were a little bit high. But when I was reading about um, either politician statements or when I was reading about uh, journalist descriptions of poverty, what what was overwhelming in terms of the descriptions were hunger mm -hmm. and uh, people being in cramped, uh, inadequate housing, um, children not having uh, sufficient clothing or at least sufficiently uh, adequate for the season and these sorts of descriptions and I thought to myself well that seems to be the traditional definition of poverty people who are genuinely de deprived um, but then when you look at the then when you look at the measured poverty it was in a relative way in other words it was m measured much differently than the descriptions they gave so uh, what I did was I thought well Perhaps it would be useful for Canadians to have a measure of poverty which reflects the way poverty is being described, uh, which was in terms of that I mentioned hunger and ill housed and so on. So I set about to do that. I thought that would be a at least at the very least a useful addition to the discussion of a very important problem. I mean, poverty is no laughing matter. It's no small concern. When people are poor, there's misery, uh, there's uh, despondency. Uh, I think there's a lot of pathologies that come with poverty. And I think all of us, anybody who has any kind of concern about the wider society would be concerned about poverty. So I, at least I set out to measure that. And I thought that would be uh, uh, something of an addition to what we already know. Let me let me pause you just for a minute because I'm trying to figure out if uh, there is still a resistance to moving away from this relative poverty measure. I'm wondering what success looks like because if the low income cutoff really is just taking the range of incomes, dividing it up into I think quintiles, so five pieces, and then looking at the lowest quintile and saying, "Aha, that's poverty." It seems like the only way you can eliminate poverty then is if everybody makes the exact same amount of income. So there isn't any diversity across the spectrum. And that's why I'm wondering is, is well, what's the connection there? Yeah, I, I mean, to correct you a little bit, the low income cutoff basically is defined as a level of income uh, that uh, people have to spend uh, in order that, spend more than 20% on the basic necessities, which is food, clothing, and shelter. Any, anybody that has to spend more than 20% more than what the average uh, Canadian spends is considered to be poor. It's a little bit of a, of a complicated uh, 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 system. Uh, it was developed in the 60s by a StatsCan researcher uh, just as a measure of low income. It seemed to fit at the time, but over time it became less and less relevant. But I think the, the measure that you're talking about is a simpler one and one that the social welfare community seems to gravitate towards, which is the low income measure, uh, which is defined as 50% of the median income. 
So there, there's where we have an issue. That's, you know, more relative, more like an inequality measure than even LICO. And so when we look at, uh, when we look at the low-income measure, the limb, it is strictly relative. And the only way to solve poverty in using that measure would be to compress the distribution of income. So well, this, is, take, this, is a, this is important because it does show that we don't even really have a, a clear handle on how many people are living in poverty because we have different measures. So we've talked about two of them. Right. We're going to talk about yours. And then we're going to talk about the one that has be, been developed as the official poverty line so that people right. know where we've been and then where we're going. So when you look at the issue of, of a basic needs poverty line, it's a moving target, isn't it? I mean, when I first was, was looking at your work, I remember... For instance, as an intern at the Fraser Institute, we didn't have an internet connection other than the dial-up connection that was in the central library that we had to all go and use. But the notion today that you don't have access to broadband internet, it would be very exclusionary. And so even in our own society, even in my own lifetime, I've seen that something that looked like a nice to have has now become a need to have. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering how you approach that issue when you're trying to figure out what, what poverty looks like. What, what are the essentials of yeah. what a person needs? And then I do agree with you. It, it's going to be, uh, it's going to change over time. So the essentials perhaps, you know, 500 years ago might've been basic shelter and food and a little bit of clothing. Things have changed. Obviously, what is considered to be a necessity is, uh, you know, to some extent reflects how people live in society. At the same time, um, you know, what we find is that people, when they're, and it, I'm talking about researchers and people who are, uh, you know, vitally concerned about poverty, they want to make it higher. They want to include cell phones. They want to include, obviously, internet. They want to include uh, a vacation. They want to include gift giving because these are parts of what society generally does. And the question, you know, the, the, the question I had to ask myself is, does that get us at the kind of poverty that politicians and journalists describe? which has to do with hunger and so on. Is there a use, is there a value in defining uh, or at least measuring a level where people are hurting? Is that a value to society? In other words, we should certainly strive much to, to a much higher level. We should certainly strive for everybody to have you know, very high levels of income, but is there a value to see how many Canadians just don't have those basic necessities covered where those journalistic descriptions seem to fit? Hunger, inadequate housing, and so on. So, uh, you know, I tried to put my compassion on the shelf. I tried to put what I, what I would want for the poor on the shelf and ask myself, is there any value in in a measure which sci at least scientifically tries to get at what we describe as poverty what is the dictionary mm -hmm. definition of poverty what people that are surveyed believe is poverty and so that was the motivation behind a rather sh strict uh measure which looks at uh just those basic necessities that would be relevant in you know 
contemporary society. Can I, I can I just pause for a minute because it strikes sure. me it's it's so hard to get at a measure because as you're talking, the the individuals that come to my mind about living in the kind of deprivation and poverty you're talking about are those who uh, occupy homeless shelters or live on the streets, and they don't have an income measure at all, I yeah. would think, in most cases. Well, not or, yeah, not necessarily. I mean, I've driven right across this country, uh, taken my family right across, and I've seen people living in rural communities that lives, live in shacks that may not be heated, uh, mm -hmm. where children are wearing tattered clothing, uh, I've looked at different parts of Toronto and Montreal, big cities, and seen the kind of poverty that people describe, quite honestly, mm. in, in journalistic stories. So to say that the only people that are poor by a basic needs measure would be people that are homeless, I think uh, is not correct. I think there are people where children go to, to school hungry where school, I mean, that's that was the motivation for school lunch programs because many children in the inner, inner cities were going to school hungry. So I think there is hunger. I think there is uh, real deprivation. And, you know, I, I would say, and, and I sort of partly apologize in my writing that I may not be the best person to measure basic needs poverty. I think there's value measuring that. I think it, it contributes to our understanding but, you know, I made a go at it uh, with a, along with some research assistants that I had at the university. But I think it's better measured by people that, for example, uh, nutritionists and uh, and people in the uh, home economics programs and to, to a great extent, people who have lived experience with poverty. So a group of people that would um, uh, maybe do a little bit better job, a little sharper job of defining necessities, keeping in mind what we're trying to measure, because if we get into what you uh, described earlier, which is inclusion, there's really no stopping. I mean, you could have a, uh, a poverty measure of $70,000, $80,000, quite honestly, mm. uh, if, you, if you get seriously into inclusion. Because, you know, and that's one of the criticisms I made in the, uh, the latest work on the causes of poverty. I looked at the way poverty is being measured and uh, with the MBM and they really have, you know, they get themselves into knots trying to say, well, if I'm including this, I really have to include that. And pretty soon we're adding to the, the level uh, right now in, in a city like Toronto, Calgary, or Vancouver with the MBM, you would have to earn an income of about $60,000 for a family of four uh to escape poverty and that for a lot of people would would you know th they might suggest that, that there's something not credible about a poverty line as we understand poverty per se uh it's a nice thing to shoot for we hope that everybody is well above 60,000 but realistically it's probably worthwhile measuring people who are genuinely deprived so that was the motivation. Uh, I get what you're saying. So 60,000 would be almost like an entry to middle class that you'd want to enhance over time. And we're talking about those who are living in more straightened circumstances than that. I exactly. guess the only thing I'm worried about is if it's an income measure, 
how do you capture the person who's living homeless or the person who lives on a First Nations reserve living in poverty who might not have traditional income? Does that get captured in your measure or is it all income-based? Yeah, it, it is income-based uh, and it, it, that's consistent with all the measures. They all use income. So uh, yes, people that are, uh, the, the thing is, StatsCan does surveys and I use databases from StatCan, but if homeless people, people on the street, for example, would not be included because they can't be, mm -hmm. you know, they're not in the census. Uh, people on reserves are often not included as well because there are, there are some issues. Uh, some reservations basically say, this is our land. We don't recognize StatsCan as being uh you know having anything to do with our people and so we don't we don't want to participate in the survey you can leave you know that sort of thing and um so there are some gaps in the coverage and it's really too bad in a sense for a researcher to uh, because there's probably a, a, a widespread recognition that people on reservations have a higher than than uh, than uh, otherwise uh, proportion of poverty. Uh, same with the homeless and so on. And so there are va various ways of getting at that. We try to, and I certainly have talked about that in my research, uh, trying to get at um, estimates from uh, people in the helping professions as to how many people are on the street and so on. Uh, but ultimately, uh, it's very difficult, and you know those estimates are hit and miss. And so we typically use a um, an income measure for sure. So let's then talk about your income measure. And the reason I think it's important, because if we're going to alleviate po uh, poverty, mm. each different group that we're talking about here probably requires different policy solutions. And Absolutely. so let's talk about the group that we can measure first, and then we'll see if we can draw any conclusions about some of the, the difficulties that we have in targeting some of those other groups we can't measure. So so how did, how did you approach the issue of, of basic needs? Well, I mean, uh, in terms of, and this is strictly measurement, uh, I looked at, um, you know, uh, shelter, I looked at food, uh, I looked at clothing, I looked at a series of other uh, necessities, things that you would have to buy to, and, and the definition, by the way, was uh, uh, you're poor if you can't afford all of the basic necessities you require for long-term physical well-being. That's stringent. I mean, that's, you know, there's no doubt about it. There's, there's not a lot of room for entertainment or other things. But the, again, the goal is to measure people that, that are genuinely deprived. And so I used, I mean, I, there's a lot of detail in there. Uh, I used um, CMHC data regarding um, shelter costs, apartment costs, and so on. Had to make some decisions as to, you know, what size of family, what fits what size of apartment. A lot of decisions, by the way, that I mentioned, uh, I would rather have people that are expert in those areas make. But as a first go through, uh, those are the kinds of decisions I made. I used um, information that I understood about uh, good nutrition, Health Canada recommendations, and went down the line, used uh, uh, clothing measures from a social welfare agency in Montreal, and so on. So I put that together and came up with a, uh, a line for families of different sizes. 
Uh, I did that specifically for different cities and then different provinces. And ultimately I came up with a, a, a single poverty line for all of Canada if there was a, to the extent that there's an interest in, in measuring that. So that's approximately, I mean, I don't think you wanna get into too much detail about you know little decisions that were made along the way, but that's broadly what I did. Well, it's very helpful because somebody who might be a single person with low income might decide to take up with a roommate in order to cut their costs. And it's sort of hard to capture some of those little nuances of the decisions people make. That's but right. let me, um, on a broader scale, when you say that you came up with a national number, mm -hmm. how much did that differ from the other two lines that we were talking about, whether it was a low income cutoff or the, the low income line that, that we that we just discussed? How far? How, how, how far different? Yeah, I mean, uh, the last time I looked at it, and of course, both lines changed to some extent, but probably about 20 to 25 percent lower. So my line uh you know, was uh, was relatively stringent again in keeping with the the principle, the the definition, but it was about twenty five percent, let's say, lower than LICO, uh, and probably about thirty or thirty to forty percent lower than the LIM, which is again defined in a strictly relative way as being half the median income. So, I guess the question I would ask, so. A contingency do you need to build in realistically? If your approach was that you don't want anybody having deprivation, right. I guess, you know, we're all human. And if we all made perfect decisions, we all wouldn't be in deprivation. And so don't you have to accommodate for the fact that some people might choose to enjoy some recreational activity, which then might crowd out the amount that they would spend on the, necess the, necess the necessities of life. I guess I'm thinking yeah. if you're a smoker, that's going to crowd out some of the money you might spend on food. Or if you like to have the occasional beer, that might also crowd out what you're spending on food. And I wonder if be just us all being human, that we have to yeah. recognize we all don't make perfect decisions. And so there does need to be to ensure that we can pay for all the things that we want. There does need to be a little more of a generous uh, allocation to, ha to how people spend their money. Again, I, I you know, <laughs> I think what you're doing is what a lot of people in the social welfare and what I did myself is confusing a poverty line with a an allowance. Hmm. And if I were giving an allowance, I would absolutely include all those things that you're talking about, uh, a more generous sort of thing, uh, particularly for people who got into a situation where you know, they had no control over perhaps a single mom who's, whose husband has died or left or whatever, and they're caught in a situation. So I think that, we, you know, we have, again, this is why I mentioned earlier in constructing this, I thought there was some use in seeing how many people couldn't even afford those basic necessities, mm -hmm. were likely to be hungry. That was my motivation. It was not as an allowance, certainly. Understood. You know what I mean? And I so sure I do. And that's why a lot of the criticism came. And I wrote a, um, uh, a, uh, an editorial for the Toronto Star uh, just describing that, that, you know, our compassion is bursting out. We want people to do well. We don't want there to be poverty. We certainly don't want particularly children to be hungry. Uh, and so, but we want people to be doing better than a poverty line. Understood. No problem. But 
there may be value as part of our package. And I, I described when I first wrote this, I said, let's have a package of poverty measures that at least we need to measure how many people are are suffering the kind of deprivation that you journalists and you politicians describe. <laughs> and so I think if we could get uh, get that um, uh, clarified as much as possible, it's probably useful for people to understand that. I think a lot of people would say, oh, it's too stringent. You're you're mean to the poor and so on. Why would you do that? You know, typical <laughs> right wing professor, whatever. That's not people are missing the point. There is value in um, in us understanding how many people don't have those basics covered. And there's probably value in having, let's say, a higher measure, which I suggested, which I developed at twice the poverty line as a goal. So let's seek twice. Let's have people, uh, you know, two times removed from the poverty line as a goal. Let's let's set that. And that was in the very first uh, uh, item or or. Uh, paper that I published, a book that I published, that had that social, um, uh, what did I call it, a social goal or something like that. So let's, but let's make that distinction. If people don't feel there's any value in estimating the number of people who just can't afford basic necessities, well, that's another issue. I, I think there is value in that. I think as a student of economics, uh, I think that we have a lot of different measures about people that are in need, unemployment measures and, and uh, health measures and so on. Let's also measure the people that don't have basic needs. So that's the Let, motivation. So let, let's talk about how a policymaker would use it, because I guess there's a couple numbers rattling around in my head, but I, I gather that I, I might not be measuring exactly uh, the comparison that you're talking about. But I seem to recall that lowest quintile, if I was looking at the low income line, was $21,000 for a single person in Calgary. And if I if your measure is say 20% less than that, that would be $16,000 for a person in yeah. in Calgary. Both of those seem really aw awfully low, but yes. I'm I'm wondering what you would do by knowing that measure. So let's take mm -hmm. your line. How wh what would be the the policy implications once you've okay. established how many people are below that mark? Okay, one of the things that I did uh, in the in the book uh, this is again going back almost 30 years. Uh, was I looked, I compared my uh, poverty line with the rates of social assistance to see how they compared, because that there is a policy issue there. In other words, does the government, uh, for people that have no other resources available to them, does the, the funds that the government gives people? Does that meet the at least the poverty threshold, at least? And what I found was in most provinces, there were a couple of small exceptions for people regarded as unemployable, which would include single parents, would include disabled people. In most provinces, uh, it, the uh, rates of social assistance, plus other benefits you get from the federal government and so on, would cover the basic needs. The exceptions were generally uh, employable individuals. So an individual who, let's say a single male or single female, 20 year old or so, um, would not, would get uh, an amount that's less than my basic needs, which means that they would be in very difficult circumstances. And when I talk to 
social assistance uh, um, administrators, when I called them up and said, this is what I found, what's the argument? The argument is we want it, we, we want it deliberately lower uh, because we want people to, to get off and get a job. Hmm. So th- this was a policy decision that they made. But I think it, you see it, it's instructive that we have that basic needs measure because we can me- measure that against uh, the rates of social assistance, which is supposed to cover the basic needs. That's what that's in their definition. They're supposed to cover the basic needs of people who don't have any other resources. I also compared it to um, minimum wage levels and found that uh, that a, a full-time minimum wage worker would be above the poverty line for a single person. Now, maybe not for a family. If we have one single, uh, one, sorry, one uh, uh, minimum wage worker supporting a whole family, that's a different story. And that would be under the basic needs. And so they would, uh, if, if someone were trying to uh, support a whole family on a, on a, on a minimum wage, that would be uh, d- more than difficult to do. It wouldn't happen. And so again, that's important information mm. to know. Let me add one more because I've often sure. thought, maybe you can tell me if this should be the way it goes, is that you should try to sync some of those up, that there would be your level of social assistance should be able to cover your basic needs. Your minimum wage should be able to be consistent with that. And the amount of your basic personal exemption before you have to start paying income taxes should right. also be synced up with that. It seems to me like there'd be some real value in trying to bring those into some consistency. Now, maybe it, maybe I'm mistaken. No, I think you're you... right. I think okay. you're right. I think that, and and uh, and I've also encountered that same uh, notion about the, the basic um, exemption for income tax. Uh, what I've done is in, uh, in, because I was questioned about, well, should your poverty lines be nominal income or should they be after tax income and so on? What I did was I went back and I looked at how much taxes people that are below the line pay. And it was virtually nothing. So the distinction wasn't really that valid. There was almost no one uh, that would be classified as poor by basic needs standards that would be paying taxes. And so I think that's as it should be if, uh, you know, if in in terms of, again, policy, uh, policy is all about, you know, what is a fair and compassionate way to arrange our society and so on. What the, the, the research that I did was not necessarily aimed at policy, although I think it can be used that way. Uh, the idea, again, is that there is some value in perhaps measuring policy against a basic needs line to see how we measure up in that sense. Let me add one more. And I don't know if you've had a chance to apply your your thinking or your model to how the government dealt with the Canadian emergency response benefit that came out through COVID. But I think that there's some discussion about that $2,000 per month allocation becoming a universal basic income. But I can tell you from the perspective of employers, we're already seeing that it's interfered with uh, work effort that uh, we have now that the economy is recovering again, we've got countless employers saying, I just can't convince people to come back to work because they're competing with a $2,000 per month allocation. And so that suggests to me that maybe they set it too high. Maybe it goes back to the discussion we had about when you have employable individuals, 
um, maybe there's a, a different type of approach that needs to be taken if you're going to uh, apply universal basic income. I, I don't know if you have any comments on that, but it does seem to validate yeah. the work that you said, that, that, that you have to know what the, what the incentives, how it messes with incentives if you, if you do set it too high. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of thinking about the policy end of things <clears throat> recently, and I do agree with you uh, relating to incentives. Um, I haven't written so much on policy. Uh, I think there's a general feeling, at, the, at least at the Institute, that they would rather focus attention on, you know, measurable uh, items, uh, you know, the empirical uh, research and so on. But I think that, you know, it's, it's the next, it's obviously the next step is, you know, what about a ba universal basic income? Is that a good idea or a bad idea? And I would say preliminarily, uh, you know, in my view, having 30 years of experience in measuring poverty, at least, and thinking about poverty, it's probably not a good idea. It's probably on balance going to, um, going to affect the labor market for sure. Uh, for people, again, for people that are, uh, you know, confident, well-educated and so on, it's not gonna make a difference. But for people at the margin, uh, having an income on a per person basis of twenty or twenty five thousand uh, dollars, if they're at the margin and if they're you know the only jobs they can get would be minimum wage types of jobs, uh, that's going to be an attractive alternative. And I think that it, there's a there's a real risk of drawing more people in to a program like that. And I would be concerned that I mean, for me, all of the research that I've done, uh, particularly on the causes of poverty, when I looked at that and looked at the uh, the recommendations by left-wing people, by by people who were who were uh, um, cabinet ministers in left-wing governments, when they do that, like Francis Lankin, for example, in in Ontario, when they do those reviews, they say the road to uh, to curing poverty is employment. Made it perfectly clear. There's no other road. There's no other way to give people that self-confidence, that feeling of independence, that feeling that they are worth something. If they're being supported by the state on a, on a long-term basis, that's simply not going to solve poverty. It's basically going to immerse people on, on a permanent basis in, in poverty. Again, this is different than, let's say, short-term assistance. Somebody needs a a help. They've, they've encountered a crisis in their life. There certainly should be somewhere in our society, whether it's done publicly or privately, there should, certainly, or by insurance, there should be something available for people as a way of step stoning into employment. But employment is certainly the cure. Uh, Bill Clinton had that as his cornerstone in the in the 90s when he developed a um, a program uh, to to sort of get people off welfare. Uh, there have been various other people that, again, on all sides of the political spectrum. Um, so I, I don't favor that uh, as a policy, simply because I don't think that's ultimately uh, going to help people become um, happy, self-sufficient uh, uh, people that are, are contributing to society and not, uh, not feeling despondent about their situation. 
let's now have the dis the difficult discussion about the causes of poverty because that's important as well if you're trying to think of how do we solve this in the long term we need to know what some of the causes are and it was so interesting as i was reading through some of your work I remember uh, a boyfriend that I had back in university who had sort of four rules to live by in life. Get up for work in the morning. Don't get uh, addicted to anything. Don't have a child out of wedlock and stay out of debt. And it was almost, that's, you found with empirical evidence that that is kind of the, the solution to poverty, or at least a portion of it is. And so, and so I want, I want to talk, I want to talk there because I think I, I did add the extra one about staying out of debt, but, but truly it sounds like um, making sure you finish high school, yep. um, having children in an intact relationship and having full-time employment that is strongly correlated with staying out of poverty. Tell, tell me the data that you looked at to make that determination. Sure. And, uh, you know, the, the, the origin of that, those sort of social norms to stay out of poverty comes from a major uh, research work uh, out of the Brookings Institution, uh, which is, I would say, because I've been reading a lot of their stuff over the years, fairly described as a left of center uh, research institute. And the people who did the research, uh, the main one, Frances Sawhill, uh, is definitely would describe herself, I think, in the sort of comfortably in the social justice community. Yet she got together with some uh, with a, a more conservative economist and they put their heads together for a number of years to try to to answer that question. What is it that causes poverty and what could we do in terms of policy to help people avoid poverty? And exactly those, uh, you know, after a lot of research, a lot of discussion and undoubtedly a lot of arguments and debates, they came up with uh, that prescription, hmm. um, basically arguing that when they looked at the statistical data, very few people that did all three, that, that had all three accomplished, which is finishing high school, uh, getting a full-time job, and having children only in the confines of marriage, very few people were considered poor. And so the poverty rate went from, you know, an average of 13 or 14 percent all the way down to less than 3 percent. So you almost have no chance of, of being poor if you did those three. And those aren't, you know, enormously difficult things to do, presumably, uh, getting a full-time job in some situations might be a little bit hard, but if they're talking about any full-time job, it doesn't matter what the wage is, just a full-time job of any sort. Um, and uh, so what, what struck me about that research was that uh, they acknowledged that where you ended up in life, to at least some extent, and probably to a large extent, is determined by your own behavior. Hmm. So in other words, they didn't believe all this deterministic stuff that, you know, we're fully determined and where we end up is just sort of a random thing and uh, we have no control over it. Uh, that's not what these researchers felt. And again, keep in mind, these are, this was a, a good mix of sort of left and right, if you want. Uh, their strong feeling was that you have a, a considerable uh, a, a range of determinacy in terms of your own behavior, you can determine your own uh, your own fortune in some sense. So that's why these are were controversial because they were behavioral suggestions mm -hmm. rather than what the government could do 
to solve poverty. These were things that you could do as an individual, maybe struggling with poverty. Uh, you know, and I think that, and so I did, by the way, I did the, the same kind of analysis for Canada as they did in terms of measuring, you know, what are the chances of being poor if you finish high school? What are the chances of being poor and so on? And then what are the chances of being poor if you do all three? And I found an even better result in Canada that less than 1% of people mm. who did all three would end up in poverty. And so, again, you know, the great debate, I think, is not so much that because that's pretty well as, as empirically established. If you do those sort of social norms, you're, you're not going to be in poverty. The great debate is to what extent um, is that reasonable? Is that feasible from a, you know, a human perspective? Is it reasonable for people to do those things? What about people that get addicted? What about people that mm. commit crimes and and have a struggle because once they, you know, get out of prison, they're they're kind of ostracized in many ways. And so there's certainly a lot of of uh, of other things that get in the way of of those. But what these researchers found was that if you did those three, uh, to the exclusion of other sort of, I guess we would call them mistakes. Again, mistakes as defined by the person themselves in hindsight. Uh, then, uh, then you can avoid poverty. May I? Uh, may I just add? A, I mean, sure. in some ways, those three seem simple, but it's actually pretty complicated to develop policies around ensuring those three things happen in most people's lives. So, I look at, for instance, finishing high school. I think that some jurisdictions have done a reasonably good job of that. I know in Alberta, for instance, they expanded the ability of someone to return to high school up until age 21. Because some people make mistakes in high school, they leave and then they say, oh, gee, that was a mistake, I need to come back. So having a pathway back to finish high school seems like a good policy decision. Um, I think maybe where we're missing out is that all of our schools seem to be geared towards setting somebody on the university track. And maybe there's some need after a person has finished high school to have some kind of job placement so that at least you get a connection. If you're not going on to additional schooling, then at least there's that initial job that you can have to latch you into the workforce. Maybe that's where we're making a, where we're not bridging the gap. And I don't know if that's a government policy solution or if that's a private sector one, but my goodness, how do you keep families intact? That's a tricky one, especially yeah. if you've got marital breakdown because of alcohol, drug, or um, gambling abuse. If you've got, uh, if you've got just an irreconcilable differences in the family, like if you've got domestic violence. So if yeah. that third one is probably the hardest one to try to, uh, aspirationally achieve across the board and and what i'll uh, just on that what the researchers in the states found uh i haven't been able to to uh check that for canada because the data is just not available what they found was predominantly uh the the children out of out of wedlock were uh never married uh, uh, mm. uh people and so it wasn't marital breakdown it wasn't um uh, people that are widowed, for example, but in fact never married, and so that is a problem. I, you know, if you uh, all you have to do is listen to Thomas Sowell on some of his YouTube videos talk about the breakdown, particularly of the black family. Thomas Sowell is, of course, a black economist, very well known, very well respected, and uh, he points to the fact that um, 
a greater proportion of black families were intact before the the great society, the great uh, 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 Lyndon Johnson's uh, war on poverty, uh, mm. and uh, and so more than more than white families, they they were uh, to a greater extent than white families, and after that, after the you know the expansion of welfare and so on, uh, it has really done a number on black mm. families, and so. You know, I think the researchers really have to take a look at, and this is what I was referring to with these reviews of social assistance, really have to take a look at what they're doing. Is it the case that, you know, you feel comfortable as a politician throwing a check at some person saying, basically, you're saying to them, we've given up on you. Hmm. You're not capable of working. Uh, here's a check. Here's a little bit of money. Um you know, don't bother us anymore, rather than a real examination of what's going on in the lives of people to try to move that person in the direction of self-sufficiency and and presumably uh, a happier life. And so I, I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm impressed by some of the some of the uh, the very well-known economists who talk about in a very frank way about the failures of social assistance and uh and uh, other programs that having to do with housing and so on giving people something rather than encouraging them and uh, and helping them uh learn how to do things on their own and what does it do to someone's psyche what does it do to their their feeling of self-esteem when everything is given to them are they thinking oh the uh the people that have, are successful have given up on me because I'm not capable, mm -hmm. rather than drawing that capability, helping them draw that capability out of themselves. So I just think we're on the wrong path. I think that, you know, perhaps well-meaning, trying to help people, uh, support people and so on in need. But I think that the programs themselves, the, the structures really aren't helping. And you know, it's interesting because we used to have strong social institutions that would encourage uh, matching uh, people with a life partner and uh, having a you know religious institutions that would provide that social support. But right. this this is the trick, isn't it? Is that we can measure all of these things, which is quite rightly in the economics discipline. But right. what where does the discipline lie where you're trying to encourage a young person to make the right choice in a partner and learn the relationship skills so that their relationship doesn't break down. I mean, that is that that gets into sort of a, a moral vein that we used to have our, our religious institutions do. If we don't have a high level of uh, religious involvement anymore, a declining level, it seems like it's a big hole, but I don't know that anybody wants to step into that breach to fix it because it sounds like we're being moralistic and judgmental. And I don't know if you have, maybe you should steer me in the direction of another discipline, but I, I think we've identified a problem that we don't have an economic solution for. We, we do. And, and I mean, for me, it starts with the family. And uh, if there are, you know, if, if the message that children are, are given is not hopeful, is is not encouraging and so on, there's a real problem right off the bat. And so uh, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, some of the work that Susan Meyer has done in the States, uh, University of Chicago professor, having to do with the characteristics of parents that lead to successful children. 
and those characteristics are not income, nothing to do with income. It all has to do with things like hopefulness and resilience and, uh, uh, and uh, honesty and the, those, those attributes that get passed on almost you know, unconsciously to children uh, that contribute to their success. So I think that there's a problem uh, and, and this is not to beat up on single parents because there's, there's many single parents that do a wonderful job and uh, it, you know, it's not that it can't be done. It's probably easier um, to inculcate those, those good values to children with a two parent family, but it can certainly be done with a, with single parents as well. The professor you mentioned, what, what, what discipline is she in? Is she in an economics department? Uh, I believe she's sociology. Interesting. Su hmm. Susan Meyer. Yeah. Uh, she wrote a book, um, what money can't buy. And Maybe. so she was refuting in a sense, the idea that you needed uh, to be, have a middle income, uh, a middle income level to raise children properly. And she certainly uh, uh, did some outstanding research on that oh. and was criticized obviously that, you know, the story goes with, you know, the major media for sure. Well, I feel like uh, as we continue this conversation, we're going to see more fields where economics and sociology should maybe intertwine and collide because right. this is the other thing that I think you've observed is that there's a difference between temporary poverty and sort of that chronic permanent poverty. And I look at my own family history. I grew up in a large family too. So uh, I remember getting the hand-me-down corduroy pants from my older brother <laughs> when I was in grade six, because you know we had straightened circumstances. Mom and dad told me their first home because they got married at 18 and 19 years old with subsidized housing. And so I've observed, and then when I got my first job at, uh, in Vancouver, I was only making $1,500 a month, which when you look at after your hydro and your and your shelter and your food, what didn't leave much left over. So I, I can see how I've lived in straightened circumstances, but it was not a permanent condition. Right. And so that's the other part of the issue. And when we're looking at, at poverty is ca can you measure that dynamism that somebody who was in poverty today might not be in 10 years. And then maybe if they haven't made certain choices to prepare for the retirement, maybe they get back into poverty gain. How, how do you look at the, at the dynamic movement in, in when you, when you're looking at these numbers? Uh, a couple of things. I mean, I, I certainly encountered that when I was a graduate student uh, and living below the line, but I knew that it was a temporary situation, which is why in, in my research, I did speak about people in that situation. Young people almost have no income and they don't count student loans as income. Uh, mm -hmm. for good reason, because it is a loan. Um, so almost all uh, students in university, they're living on their own, and there are probably about a million of them, uh, would be, most of those would be classified as poor. Uh, and so, you know, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a consideration. And so we want to we wanna make those distinctions. There was no easy way for me to, to throw those out. So they're included as, as part of the package of poor. But uh, there is a lot of research on, on um, intergenerational poverty and also in terms of um, people that are temporarily poor, the, the transition out of poverty. The, the problem is uh, the databases that you need to do that research are you know, panel data. So in other words, you get a, a, a group of people in your survey and you come back to them every year for a period of, of time. Because you can't 
you know, you want to get the same people. What is your circumstance right now? Okay, come back in a year. What is your circumstance now? Have you got a job or whatever? And so those uh, those um, panel uh, databases were not available to me when mm-hmm. I was doing most of my research. But what, what was available to me was the results of StatsCan uh, research on transitory poverty. Now, they use the low-income cutoff which is different than what I've used. But that being said, if you if you think about that as a as at least a low income, if not a poverty line, uh, what they found is most people are successful in getting out of low income. Most people move on. They did a six year study. So every every year for six years, they measured where people were at in a continual way. And they found that most people are successful mm-hmm. in getting out on their own without any assistance. However, there's certainly a, a, a number of people, and I, I don't remember the numbers right now. It's been a while since I've looked at that. But let's say 15 to 20 percent of people were continually in poverty over all those six years. So that is a concern. That's an area where you want to focus attention. If, if you and I managed to get out of poverty without much help and so on, and went on to uh, you know at least a middle class uh, standard of living, that wouldn't be a concern particularly of society or of anybody uh, because we've managed to move out of it ourselves. We've used our own resources to move on uh, whether it was education or whatever, but for people that are mired in poverty, that is a concern. If there's a certain number. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you, cause it strikes me, this, this is a strange data problem that you've identified. It seems like it should have an easy solution. I mean, we all have a social insurance number that is uh, attached to the moment we start making our first dollar until the moment we pay our last dollar, it would right. seem like there should be some way of stats can severing off any personal details about an individual and doing that kind of analysis. It seems like we have robust data and that that seems like an untapped pool for us to really get an understanding on, on poverty. Is there is there some reason why we can't access that data? You're absolutely right. And more recently, I would say in the last 15 years or so, what StatsCan is doing is they are uh, asking people, you have to get consent, uh, but they're asking people uh, when they do the, um, the census and when they do these income surveys, if they would be okay for StatsCan to use on a confidential basis, masking their identity, uh, their income tax return, hmm. uh, which is coded by the social insurance number. And about 80% of people do agree to that. Now, that's, I think, an improvement. However, we should not be under any illusion that income tax data is perfect. Mm-hmm. People that, um, that, you know, hide income uh, you know, on their income tax because, you know, they, uh, whether they're a waiter or waitress or there's somebody in the uh, construction business, they may not give all their income. I'll tell you an interesting story. I think this is would be relevant to listeners. When I was beginning my research, I got a, a little job as a StatsCan um, uh, uh, census counter. So I would go door to door to people and, and so on. Again, I was a professor at the time, but I wanted to do that as a summer job, basically for a couple of months to see how the data was collected, the data that I would use. And so I certainly remember uh, a couple of uh, uh, sort of interesting cases. There was one individual who was a construction person 
who also had a, a, a sideline in the music industry and declared that they had no income. And I had to put that down on my set. Whatever people said, I had to put that down. So there was zero income. This guy lived in a four bedroom, very, very <laughs> nice home. Uh, I would say an executive home, had a, a very thriving business, zero, because that's what he reported for other purposes. And so on the census, it was zero. And so this is one of the things that I have partic paid particular attention to. The data that I get is not perfect. It's not always accurate. And in fact, there was a Bank of Canada study done in, um, in 2015 that pointed out, and I think I have it here, 35 to 50% of households underreport some income. And for lower income households, it's 60 to 70%. So they underreport their income. This is the data that I have to use to measure poverty. And they come up with a statement, these researchers saying, uh, for that reason, any measure, any estimation of poverty is going to be suspect. And it's going to be understated in the sense that, you know, or, or I should say overstated in the sense that people probably, uh, there's a certain number of people who will have more income than they let on. So that's always an issue. And it is, you know, in the, and it's important because then you don't want to overprescribe government support if you do have individuals who don't actually need it, which is why I think this narrow, zeroing in, if we can, on the chronically poor or the, the chronically impoverished is really important. And again, I, you know, you don't want to be in a position, that's why I say it's sort of tricky to talk about it. You don't want to be in a position where you're looking like you're blaming the poor, right. but you have itemize a whole variety of things that cause that kind of persistent poverty. Um, I just want to run through a few of these and then we can talk about, let's zero in on a few of them to see if there's some policy solutions. Bad luck, bad choices. You can have an inherited health condition or an accidental health condition, get into some kind of accident. There can be abuse or violence, either currently or historically. You can see a death of a spouse and that can plunge someone into poverty. Um, there can be criminality, drug use. It could be a high school dropout. We've talked about that. Kids outside of marriage is also one of the difficult things to manage. Reckless spending. Um, you, I mean, and that can, you could talk about gambling addiction as well associated with that. And those are all really complicated issues to try to solve. And do they get solved? by saying, aha, we've identified you in this category. Now we're going to give you an income support. I don't, I think that that's one of the things that's challenging is that if you've got somebody who's made a decision or had a series of actions that put them in that position, there almost needs to be some coaching or some kind of buddy system to help them make different decisions so they can get out of it. I don't know that just cutting a check is the right answer there. I, I, so it, it, again, it becomes really complicated because I think we want easy solutions. We want, we want generous solutions. We don't want anybody to feel stigmatized by the situation they find them in. But um, I don't know that you can have a conversation without poverty without talking about some of the causes. I agree 100%. And you've taken the words basically right out of my mouth because I was going to say cutting a check really from a distance really doesn't solve the, the underlying problem. So what I've suggested in a lot of the work that I've done, again, I've, I've stood a little bit apart from policy per se, but, but hinted at uh, uh, some policy ideas. One-on-one uh, -on -one 
is really the only way uh, to address that kind of chronic poverty. Those people that are, have uh, underlying situations that are, are extremely difficult, whether it's uh, they're an ex-convict or whether they're suffering abuse or whatever. Each one is a little bit different. Each one may be similar in the sense that they suffer poverty, but each one is a little bit different in terms of their life situation. And so my suggestion is that uh, this business of a, um, you know, a cold-hearted uh, uh, welfare system that just throws money uh, is not going to do it. They need some kind of one-on-one, -on -one, as you say, a buddy system. That could happen, uh, you know, to some extent within families or within communities. It doesn't necessarily take the government to do that. I think we, if you read some of the stories of people that are depressed, a lot of people get out of that depression with the help of family and friends. You know, they, they, they're able to, to talk it out in a sense over a period of time. Um, I think the same thing can happen with people that are poor, uh, but it may be unrealistic to expect that to happen in all situations. There may be people removed from their families, removed from a community. Maybe they have uh, mental issues that, that make it difficult for people to approach them and so on. So there's a whole host of different situations. And I think that's why one-on-one -on -one kind of, you know, sitting down with someone after, say, their crisis has subsided, if they're suffering violence or whatever, once things have calmed down, to sit down and 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 have a, a, a serious discussion about moving forward in life. And uh, I think that's the only way to resolve poverty. And again, it may not necessarily involve the state. Uh, it, it could be something that happens mm. within communities, within voluntary organizations, but it's certainly, the way we're doing it now is not working. We have, if not, um, you know, every bit as much poor, uh, poverty, we have more poverty. Mm. We have one or the other. And certainly in the States, that's the case. And um, a, a, an approach that is more compassionate is one that takes people not as, you know, check recipients, but rather as human beings that have some difficulties uh, that you want to work with, again, with their consent. Consent is really vital. Uh, work with them uh, to establish a, uh, a way to move forward. You know, it's interesting. It, you always, I think there is always a, a tendency. I'm a libertarian, but when people have made bad choices, there's sort of a tendency to say, well, they should, it should be a requirement of receiving government money that they will do X. I, we had a work to uh, welfare to work kind of, uh, or welfare for work kind of approach that was talked about in the 90s, that the only way you could receive compensation was to be connected with some kind of work. Is it too coercive to say, if we're going to give you this kind of government support, you need to be connected with a social agency that is going to be your advocate or your coach or give you some life skills so that you can start making better choices. There's plenty, you're right, there's plenty of organizations like that. I, I guess I think of two that I've that I've supported. The, I have a, a charity that I'm on the board of and, and we take recommendations from a public health nurse of at-risk families to help give them parenting skills and coach right. those those parents. And there's a, an, a, an advocacy group that uh, deals with uh, adolescent addiction and they take the same kind of buddy approach. It's sort of a right. former addict coaching a young person 
about how to get through it. And it's a long-term program. There's a pay it forward aspect. And I'm just wondering if that is something that you cross your fingers and hopes get supported and developed just naturally, because that's uh, how the market for these kinds of nonprofit services would exist. Or is, is there some, um, if we're talking about the solutions to poverty having not worked, is there some way that you could have a, a requirement that you connect a person who is in that kind of chronic impoverished position with the very agencies who can get them out of it in the long term. I don't know. I'm just sort of blue skying here because there yeah, does seem no, to be a I, hole I, there. I, I think a lot about that. And I, I think that if it were, let's say, a community organization rather than the government and people in the community contributed to this organization to help people in need, uh, I think they would expect generally for that organization to have some strings attached, something, you know, after the crisis has subsided, and when a person is in a way in a in a frame of mind to be able to talk about their situation and ways of of moving out of it and moving towards self sufficiency, I think that they you know uh, any organization, the people that support that organization would want that to be compassionate and take them enough time for that person to to adjust, but at the same time would want you know to some extent, uh, a little bit of a string attached. The problem becomes, what if a person is resistant? What, it, what do you do about a person who simply does not listen or does not, um, is not receptive to even a, a coordinated attempt um, to, to, you know, to, to participate in a program that would lead to their self-sufficiency? Hmm. Uh, and that's the that's really the most difficult question. Do you let that person starve? You know, I, I can't even imagine a libertarian, a conservative, anyone saying at the end of the day, that person's got to starve. If they're not cooperating with our program, we've given them every opportunity. We've got to let them just sort of go, go out in the street and whatever. I think that, you know, uh, th there's always going to be a last resort, whether it's a food bank or something. Uh, for people that, uh, that uh, and you, you never give up on people. If the person is resistant for two months, four months, a year, whatever, maybe in two years, there's going to be hope. Maybe, maybe after some difficulties, they will come back and say, I, ne I need to stop this. I need to, whether it's drugs or whatever, I need to, uh, to get onto a better path. So uh, I think you've identified a really difficult one. For libertarians, they would say, we need community organizations, voluntary community organizations to, with consent of people, to help them. But at the end of the day, we probably want some strings attached. We want to have value for our money. We want to basically say, we want to contribute to something that actually works, that gives people hope, that gives people a, uh, a better life, a life where they have self-esteem. And so that's the, the difficult areas if people don't cooperate. Let's do another difficult one because I'm hearing that the issue of poverty, I mean, it's, I think we've got a multiple categories. We've got someone who appears to be impoverished, but they're hiding income. So they're not actually impoverished. We do have those who are temporarily in poverty because of life circumstances, but they don't need much intervention. They can get out of it on their own because of uh, certain personal characteristics or family or community characteristics. Then you've got this group who are impoverished because of temporary life circumstances who with a little bit of coaching and guidance can make different decisions and move out of it. But what about this other category of the impoverished that 
uh, are incapable of making decisions that will allow them to get out of poverty. And I've got a personal story about that too. I have a, an uncle quite sadly, who was in um, the Pinocchio Mental Health Hospital, but we made a decision that we shouldn't incarcerate people who are incapable of taking care of themselves. And so he went out onto the streets and ended up dying actually as a homeless person. And I don't think that was a better outcome, but I don't know that we would ever go back to having a recognition that there are certain people who need round the clock support and may need it permanently. It's a very, that to me is sort of the, the real nub and the real challenge. And when I, when I look at those who are kind of chronically in a homeless situation, there's a lot of addiction issues, a lot of mental health issues, a lot of personality disorder issues, a lot of issues of not having social connection. And I don't know what the policy solutions there are, because again, my libertarian mindset is you can't just take these folks and forcibly confine them. But how do you how do you help somebody who is incapable of making decisions that will get themselves to, on a path to independence? That's really thorny for me. And I don't know if you have some thoughts on it. That, it, that's a very difficult one, and I've, did, I've thought a lot about that. In Ontario, uh, in the mid-'80s, we had the same thing. We basically had a, a new law that basically said you can't incarcerate people, you can't keep them, confine them into mental institutions unless they are a harm to society or themselves. So there was a, a flood of people outside uh, in, in all of our cities, including my own city, and... Uh, and they had to basically fend. They were on uh, some kind of support. They had financial support, but sometimes they would go off their medications and they would do crazy things. And it was just, you know, it was it was something that uh, would would tug at your heartstrings to say, on the one hand, they're probably better off in an institution, you know, with the regular medication, and so on. On the other hand, uh, those of us with any libertarian instincts would say. You can't do that to people. You you can't keep them mm -hmm. because it's convenient for you, and you don't want to see them on the streets doing crazy things. And so uh, you've identified a very difficult one. Uh, I don't have an easy solution. Uh, I think it has to. I mean, I go back to consent. Um, every individual uh, has personal autonomy and has basic rights. Uh, I think any libertarian would would acknowledge that. And, uh, you know, you, you encouragement, um, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and sort of being as, as positive and compassionate as possible. Uh, beyond that, I think I, that rule is probably a good one, unless you're a harm to yourself or others. Uh, you probably have to put up with, uh, in a sense, as a, as a, a broad, compassionate society. You have to basically live with those those uh, those folks who who are out there and and uh, maybe don't always take their medications mm. and so on. And I don't one. think there's an easy solution. Uh, again, I've struggled with that because you know it, it is it is um, it, the the convenience of having people put away and out of sight. Uh, I think uh, is is less important than their personal autonomy. For the me. other, so so uh, I don't know if you've given thought to First Nations poverty. It sounds like it's difficult to get at because you're empirical and you can't get the data. But I guess that's the worry that I have is that we spend a lot of time developing policy solutions for middle class families to move them from lower 
end of the middle class spectrum to the middle end or the upper end of the middle class spectrum without dealing with the issue of actual poverty in right. policy in a way that's really going to get at, at these hard issues. And so that might be a good transition for us to talk about the uh, Canadian child tax benefit, because I'm not sure how I should frame my thinking around that. I guess I've always looked at it as uh, an income support program to help parents pay for childcare. I hadn't really thought about it as a poverty alleviation measure, but I think it's been framed as a poverty alleviation measure. And this is always a, a challenge too, is that children shouldn't have to suffer because their parents are making decisions that are putting them into straightened circumstances. So I'm, I'm interested in knowing how you've approached your analysis of that issue, because that also um, paves the way for a lot of policy decisions is framing in terms of child poverty. It's hard to measure. It's hard to figure out what those solutions are. Yeah. And, um, and, and so just put that into some context for us and we'll see if we can, if we can find a better way of structuring it. Well, if we can if we can find a better you shouldn't have to pay for, you know, bad parenting or mistakes. But with the child uh, uh, Canada child benefit, the parents get the money. <laughs> and so if they were if they were inadequate or if they were bad parents, uh, this is simply not going to help the children in any direct way. If 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 the parents weren't spending sufficient time, attention and, and love and and money on the children. Um, I think the big question for me in all of this, uh, and it's one that I haven't put down to paper, but I think we have to think about this as, uh, as, a, as a larger sort of societal question. Should the government, is it the role of the state to subsidize procreation? Hmm. Is that what we want? Is yeah, that I can, I'll let me make the argument for it, and then you can tell me why I'm wrong. Yes, I guess the, the argument that we would make for it is that we've now created a system of expensive universal programs for long-term care, for health care, for pharmaceuticals, for seniors care, for, uh, for daycare, for education, that we now have to have a new group of taxpayers coming up to as especially as people age to make sure that we can continue to support that social welfare safety net and so we've kind of locked ourselves into needing to have a higher birth rate or if we don't have a higher birth rate having a higher level of immigration because we've created a, a structural system where we have created a dependency on some yeah. of those universal programs so that would be the argument I think people would make for subsidizing procreation is we're breeding the next generation of taxpayers to pay for everything that, that we've, we've committed to. As you, as, you, as you can appreciate, you know, some people might say, well, that's a real cynical way of approaching, you know, the, our future. Uh, and, but I agree with you. I think that that's in the minds of many politicians is, boy, how are we going to pay for all of these programs and the ones that are I mean, we don't even have a universal daycare. We have one in Quebec, but 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 certainly the government is thinking about that and, and talking about that. So that's going to be another one. And there's probably more uh, coming in the future. So, you know, despite the cynicism, uh, you know, it's either we we really <laughs> generate out a lot of good taxpayers, especially for middle class families. Or we th we rethink a lot of our expensive programs, and and mm -hmm. ask ourselves: Are they working? Are we doing? You know, do we have the kind of of um, healthcare system 
that we that we want and that that we're paying for we're we paying too much for that the education system certainly we've talked a lot about the welfare system those are the three biggies that's the biggest part of government spending and then of course the ccb is one of the has now become one of the biggest uh expenditures in uh at the federal level hmm. um it apparently in the range of 27 billion dollars a year Wow. That's a lot of money, and uh, I'm, I think that we at least I, I agree with your 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 argument because I think that's the argument that many politicians would probably not vocalize, you know, so so explicitly. But that's probably in their mind. But we we do have to think about whether that's in the role of the state. Is the state uh, um, should should they be neutral on the matter of how many children you have? Or should they, uh, or should they have a uh, you know a positive influence on that? And what are the implications of that? Uh, are, you know, are we going to get more middle class children, which presumably would be, given your argument, would be what we want. We want, uh, you know, because they tend to replicate what their parents do. Or do we want more children at the lower le- end end of the scale and so on? And so these are all questions, to some extent, empirical, but. Uh, I mean, for me, again, you know, anybody with libertarian instincts would say that's not the role of the state at, at all. I mean, the, the state needs to rethink mm-hmm. what it's doing, but certainly it shouldn't be a subsidizing procreation. That's simply not uh, in any way connected to what the state should be doing. If if the role of the state traditionally is to protect our rights and to make sure that, you know, we have a safe environment in our cities and our communities and so on. Uh, this is pretty far removed from that. Uh, and it certainly con- contradicts the recommendation of the Brookings Institute, we-, we talked about earlier, that you should only have the number of children you can afford. Well, the state is intervening in that decision and saying, well, you know, maybe we can help <laughs> you afford that children. Let me make a less cynical argument, but one that you probably won't agree with anyway. What if the actual argument, because I think if you look at the data from Quebec, which as you point out is the is the only universal daycare program system that we have, although it sounds like the current government upon re-election wants to roll that model out across the country. I'm not sure that it's resulted in more babies being born, but so maybe the argument is that for the purposes of having stability in government revenue, you want to make sure that if you have two parent families, both parents are working because then you have two parents who are paying tax revenues and that there is you're intervening in the family structure to try to encourage uh, both parents to work as opposed to having one parent stay home. And is that is that a legitimate role for the state? I mean, if you're asking me, no, <laughs> I don't <laughs> think that uh, that's not with the state, uh, you know, it, it, if we're thinking deeply about what a state is for, uh, I mean, we've got ourselves into a situation where we have to be thinking that way because we've got all this expense of what are we going to do and so on. But I think there may be some value in going back to some deep thinking about what the state should be doing, what it shouldn't be doing. We know what we know is, uh, and social scientists will certainly support this. Uh, we have a huge bureaucracy whose uh, whose primary goal is self-preservation. Hmm. I mean, they really, you know, even sociologists on the left talk about uh, talk about um, 
uh, you know, the the self-preservation that happens in institutions in 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 the the poverty industry. They they talk about the poverty industry as if it were some kind of you know self uh, you know uh, self-interested organization that was primarily. I mean, they they give lip service to helping the poor, but they're primarily interested in their hundred thousand dollar a year jobs as researchers, as administrators, and so on. It's a huge industry. Uh, and so, you know, I think these, these are things we have to realize. They will come up with all kinds of arguments that say you absolutely have to have the state as large as it is, if not larger, to help people and so on. And, and you might ask, well, are they really helping? Are, are, are people really having good you know, after state intervention, having good, worthwhile lives that they they enjoy and that they feel they feel self-esteem and so on, or are we simply you know putting them aside in you know in some kind of a uh, out of the way situation uh, and making ourselves feel better about it? I, I just you know I for me and, and I consider myself right now focused on political economy rather than just economics. I think we have to re, uh, rethink what we want the state to be doing, what the state should be doing. Um, and, I, and I focus on consent for sure of each individual as a, an autonomous in person that, that, uh, that should be self-directed, that should have their own life. Uh, and, uh, and, that, and the state should be rather neutral on the decisions that people make in their in their own lives. You know, it's so interesting. So I'm in the middle of watching the Mad Men series, and it's quite interesting to see the traditional family roles. And it wasn't that long ago, but I wonder if connecting this to poverty and why government thinks they should intervene in helping to get uh, women primarily, let's say, back into the workforce as fast as possible, as we've talked about some of the reasons for poverty, as if you don't have attachment to the workforce and your husband dies, that can be one of the reasons for poverty, or you get a divorce, yep. or as other type of family breakdown, or if you haven't established your own credit file, your own credit record, you may not even have access to debt or a credit card if you if you if you don't have your your own your own financial history. And so I can see how you'd be able to make some arguments that you were trying to reduce poverty by creating the supports to allow for women to maintain those social connections, right. but you are you are interfering in people's personal choices. There's no question about it. Well, How do you balance that? That's the question. Should people be responsible mm. to do those sorts of things? So you have a husband and a wife, and they're newly married, and everything is you know uh, is wonderful. Should those people be responsible for thinking each of them what happens if what happens if the marriage doesn't work? Uh, what happens about what's you know my credit situation? Should I be a joint owner of the of the home and so so that i am participating in the credit what about jobs and so i do we leave that for people to sort of <laughs> figure out their own lives given all the information that we have and all the help that we have outside of government we have enormous amounts of help banks are very helpful and so on um or should the government be intervening in people's lives mm -hmm. to steer them and direct them i mean there there was a whole series of of economic papers and books about nudging, about the state nudging people in the right direction as if they're sheep that, you know, you need the shepherd to kind of, no, no, not that direction, go in there. 
I don't know about all that. I'm really, you know, I just like, you know, whether they get this from the family or whether they get this from their cues in society or different cues that you have in society, whether they get this from financial institutions or helping institutions. I just like the idea of people with help, obviously, if they need it, to be more self-directed, personal right. responsibility. I, I keep calling it the wrong name because I think it's changed names so many times. I, I keep calling it the Canada Child Tax Benefit. It's not called that anymore. What do you, what do you call it? CCD? It's CCB, Canada Child Benefit. Canada Child Benefit. So before I leave this topic, though, yeah. is it a proxy for daycare? Is it a way to give families a means to help take care of child care in their own way? Is it a poverty alleviation measure? Or is it now just such a huge program that no politician would dare touch it because they would <laughs> face political consequences? I'm trying to, having yeah. this conversation with you, I'm beginning to think it started off as a poverty alleviation measure, but I'm not sure that's what it is anymore. The government certainly promoted it as such. Uh, and they and they brag now, and this is the my latest paper that was just actually published today, uh, is baking, basically taking them to task for their claim that the child uh, Canada Child Benefit has brought so many people, so many children above the poverty line. Uh, look, I mean, if you're asking me honestly what that program is, it's a vote getter. Hmm. Because what we looked at uh, in a previous essay uh, with the Fraser Institute, they, they did the number crunching. They've got an outstanding person, Milagros over there, who does great work, uh, and and what she did was she basically looked at uh, where the Canada Child Benefit goes, and the overwhelming majority of that money goes to middle class families, families mm -hmm. earning fifty thousand dollars plus, and so if that's the case, then what are you really doing? I mean, uh, you're not aiming it at the poor. You're not. It's not a program aimed at the poor, even though you may talk about it that way. Uh, if you look at the distribution of the funds, uh, that contradicts what you're saying. And so I think that's one of the beautiful things about the Institute is that they, you know, they, they take government claims and government statements and they look for empirical evidence to see whether they're being honest with the Canadian population. And if we're going to have a big government, we, we certainly need a big government that's honest. <laughs> And, and, and we need to check on them and, and, and check the claims that they make. And so that's the, that was the purpose of this latest paper. Uh, I just don't think you can honestly call the, the Canada Child Benefit a, an anti-poverty program. It in no way does that. The parents get the money. They don't have to use it on children at all. Uh, many of them will, but it's up to the parent to decide that. And so uh, it, it just, you know, to me, very flimsy uh, vote getting, because hmm. basically what you're doing is you're saying, okay, middle class taxpayers, you pay a lot of money. Let's say you pay a thousand dollars. We're going to give you 500 of it back. We're going to keep 500 for ourselves because we have to keep this big bureaucracy going, but we're going to give you $500 back and you're going to cheer about it and you're going to vote for us. That's effectively what's happening. Okay, you're now getting almost as cynical as I am. I've yes. often said that, that the government taxes the heck out of the middle class to pay for programs for the middle class, but they frame it as we're taking money from the rich to give to the poor. Exactly. And and so in maybe just our final minutes talking about 
wealth inequity because I think that uh, or or wealth inequality sure. it seems almost beside the point after everything we've talked about, doesn't it? About the real causes of poverty, some of the really hard solutions we have to make. How we often hear government advertising certain programs to deal with those issues, but they don't they don't really only indirectly. And so I wonder how this wealth inequality piece comes comes into this because. You know, I've never understood why people think that uh, that you should take bill money from Bill Gates and give it to a poor family, and somehow that will solve the problem of poverty. I don't understand why the super rich, and we saw it even in our own election in Canada, that the super rich or the I think there's new terms for it, the uber rich, <laughs> that that they're that they the, this should be the target to alleviate some of the problems that we have in at the lower income level and and I'm I'm trying there's something there's something wrong with the argument but there's something that viscerally is attractive to people yeah. that somehow bill gates is greedy for wanting to keep his wealth and do his own make his own decisions about it yeah. but i'm not greedy for wanting some of bill gates as wealth and i'm not <laughs> i'm not sure what what disconnect i know there's a disconnect there i can't really articulate it because it is so entrenched that, that people think that that's the way the world ought to work. What am I missing? It, it is. And you know what? I think that, that the, the, the root of, of concern about inequality is envy. It, mm. it gets down to that. Now, you mentioned Bill Gates. And, and Bill Gates had an option of taking some of his billions of dollars, and he's got so many billions, it's just uh, unbelievable, of, of giving that to the government and saying, you know what, you need some help with uh, poverty programs. I'm going to do that. I'm going to give you 30 or $40 billion. He didn't do that. He started his own foundation. And what he said, if you watch his YouTube videos, what he said is essentially, I mean, in so many words, the government doesn't do it well. They're just, they're actually creating more poverty. I'm going to take uh, places in the world that don't have a well, for example, that don't have clean water. And I'm not just going to give it to them, but I'm going to have as part of this an education program. Uh, we're going to go in and work with people. We're, we're never going to do things without their consent. Uh, but we're going to facilitate in some way people getting clean water, which is a big, big step for some places. Uh, we're going to facilitate other things, health and education, particularly for girls. We're going to do these things on our own with our billions of dollars because those are things that give, he used the word value for money as a businessman, but mm -hmm. this is like, in a sense, value for human beings to move out of a desperate situation. That's what he's doing with his billions of dollars. He's also got a billionaire's club and he's signed on uh, Warren Buffett. And, and several other billionaires to, as part of this foundation to give ultimately half of their wealth, which would be hundreds of billions of dollars, half of their wealth to the foundation, which again is going to be operating on, uh, on, the, on the principle of value for money. So I think that's uh, instructive in, in, because you raised that issue. But for me, inequality is really not a concern. Poverty is the concern. Uh, when I when I read first read the statistic that the bottom 20 percent of society has zero wealth, I was a little bit surprised. I thought, oh, my goodness, they have no wealth. In fact, the, in some of the, the stats, there were even negative wealth in there. And so in other words, they owed money. They were they had no net worth. 
and then I did my study and I, I found out exactly why. And I, by, by the time I did the study, I kind of knew why. We have a life cycle that everybody goes through. So you think about yourself when you were a student, when you were in your teens and 20s and so on, you probably had no wealth. In fact, if you had a student loan, you had negative wealth. That's understandable. That's not your situation now. And it's certainly not my situation because I went through the same life cycle. Everybody goes through that when, whether you go to university or whether you go after high school, go into the job uh, world. In your teens and 20s, you're probably not going to have much wealth. And that's a lot of people. And that's that makes up most of the bottom 20%. You come back in 20 or 30 years, those people are well ensconced in the second, if not the first quintile. Um, and most of those people have uh, a good amount of wealth because they built up a pension fund, because they've done personal saving, and mainly they have their own home. And so that happens as a routine thing. Now, this is not to minimize some of the people that get sidetracked, that don't have that pattern, but that's the pattern for the large majority of, po of the population. And that's what drives the wealth inequality statistics. So if you see that, you know, 65, that, uh, the top quintile has 65% of the wealth and the bottom quintile has nothing. That is simply the result of, in large part, in large part, uh, that life cycle that everybody goes through. Mm. Now, you, you, you add to that some inheritances that some people uh, get inheritances. Now, it's interesting that when uh, the dean of, of wealth inequality studies in the state said that inheritances actually reduce wealth inequality because poor families inherit uh, their, their children inherit more proportionally than well-off families or the middle-class families. So that's another sort of statistic to keep in mind. But uh, I just don't think that all of the uh, all of the uh, emotional energy devoted to wealth inequality uh, is going anywhere. It's not. It, we should be concerned about the poor. I'm glad that a lot of our discussion today has has centered around the poor and the and the very difficult issues. Uh, that that happen in in with relation to, to to poverty, I just think inequality sidetracks us. It's all about ideology. It's all about um, envy to a, to a large extent. Ideology, of course, socialists are committed to compressing the distribution mm -hmm. of income. Well, you know that's that's what they believe in. That's not something that I think most people believe in. I think most people are prepared to to say, if you earn a high living, a high standard of living, and if you earn even billions of dollars, as long as you haven't defrauded anybody in the process, as long as you haven't stolen it, then that's yours to keep. And undoubtedly, what you will do is what Bill Gates does. You'll go back and give back to the community. I wonder if we need to get you doing the calculation or creating some measures on the other end. So... If you need to have a high school diploma, have a child within wedlock and have full-time work to avoid poverty, and we've done some good measures on what poverty is, I wonder if there's like a finish line that once you reach this mark, you're now probably okay to be self-sufficient, enjoy a wealthy lifestyle and manage your yourself in retirement. I guess I've sort of always had a rule of thumb in my mind. You want to have your house paid off. You probably want to have a million dollars worth of investable assets between you and your spouse. Yeah. And quite frankly, I don't know if you need much more than that. <laughs> I mean, maybe I've got small aspirations. No, but those... I wonder if there's some work that needs to be done around what 
what does success look like? Because then you can measure where people are at along the life cycle of achieving that success. Am I am I going in the right direction? Or well, I, I think so, and I think you know perhaps I could jokingly say that your boyfriend back in in the university had the right kind of prescription. Uh, and you know, if you do those things, you're going to be on a good footing. Uh, I mean, look, life sometimes throws people curves with whether it's divorce, injury, disability, whatever, but. For most people, most of the time, those things work. And if you if you start off that way with those basic social norms, you're going to build on that. You're obviously going to say, oh, I have a full time job. And if I'm working responsibly at that job, I'm going to get promoted. There are going to be other opportunities. So in my 20s, I may have a close to a minimum wage job. But as I progress, if again, if I apply that same kind of of enthusiasm uh, that I did uh, sort of adopting those three basic um, social norms, if I apply that enthusiasm to the rest of my life, I'm going to be in good shape. And as you say, uh, between spouses, if they have even 500 to a million, uh, 500,000 to a million, uh, plus, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's government benefits as well that come with retirement, they're going to be in solid shape. I mean, generally, Again, barring any kind of unforeseen uh, situation, they're going to be in good shape. And so that's, a, I think, a good prescription generally for the population. I love I love talking with you. I'm so glad we finally had a chance to have a full <laughs> conversation. I've interviewed you in shorter conversations before, but this has been delightful. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. That that was uh, Christopher Sarlo, who, of course, is a professor emeritus of economics from Nipissing University and a senior fellow of the Fraser Institute. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org.